I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. Welcome to another Prehistory Guys interview, introducing you to people often hidden in the background, but whose work is really making a difference to our understanding of humanity in prehistory. Today we're talking with Dr Tom Booth from the Ancient Genomics Laboratory at the Francis Crick Institute, where he specialises in analysing ancient DNA from archaeological human remains teasing out all manner of information from diet and disease to migrations of people in the distant past. Tom's recent research has been shedding light on different funerary practices in the Bronze Age, revealing some fascinating discoveries about ways that people related to or looked after the remains of the departed. His work is truly fascinating and it's really bringing some clarity to the huge genetic shifts which took place in the major transition periods of the past. Yeah, it's remarkable how the study of ancient DNA is revealing more and more insights into the lives of our distant ancestors. Truth be told, and uh, not for the first time, we could have talked long enough to make half a dozen interviews. We hope you enjoy this one. Dr Tom Booth. Hello Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you both? Yeah, we're very good. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate this. Looking forward to a very interesting conversation here. Um, Good. Should we just kick straight in? First question we always ask absolutely everybody, because everybody wants to know, is what is it that actually originally got you into archaeology in the first place? So I really felt like I tumbled into archaeology really and to some extent into some of the subjects that we're going to be talking about now uh, through a series of sort of fortunate things that happened. So, I mean, um, when I was going to go to university, I just looked at my A-levels and I, I was sort of interested in archaeology. It's, it's always a cliche to mention Time Team, but from watching uh, Time Team and things, that, that had always interested me. I, I wasn't really into it. It was just at the A-levels that I did. I thought mm, it, it was a mixture of sort of... Um, uh, more humanities and more science based. So I did sociology, history, chemistry, and physics at A level. And uh, I kind of thought, what's the best combination of these things? Because I like doing the science part, but I also like the humanities component as well. And archaeology is what turned up really. And I wasn't necessarily all that enthused about archaeology. But then when I got to doing it at university, that was when I really got into it. And uh, particularly the the study of human remains. It always used to surprise me that other people on the course went into human remains as well because I assumed that everyone would be interested in human remains, but no, no, not everyone. No, not everyone is. I thought everyone would, would think it, uh, it was, it was, it was just fun and uh, and fascinating. Uh, but I wasn't, so I just sort of went into it and uh, yeah, and um, that's what I've been doing uh, ever since. So it, it's that aspect. It's almost like. Um, at the time, kind of the, the the forensic aspect of studying human remains, the the idea that you're is almost almost like a detective story yeah. that you're piecing together parts of a person's life, um, from their skeleton or the things that they were buried with, or on a, a broader scale, piecing together events or processes uh, that happened in the past from um, looking at human skeletal remains. Yeah. Any early indications when you were a kid about the way things were going to go? I remember I used to bury my Thomas the Tank Engine a lot and then dig it up out of a flower pot. <laughs> that would do uh, it. There's, there's I have a vivid, vivid memory of. <laughs> I have a vivid memory of digging up my Thomas the Tank Engine out of some, out of a flower pot and my mum getting quite uh, or playing pop 
playing pop with me, as they say yeah. in uh, Lancashire, with me when uh, when she found what they got soil all over the floor. Yeah, maybe that was maybe that was an early indication. Yeah, that's priceless. priceless. Uh, uh, so, where are you? Where are you from exactly, Tom? Um, originally from Burnley, in um, right. East Lancashire. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. So, and um, good part. Of, well, uh, what? Because uh, now you're at the Francis Crick Institute now. So, what, what's the main focus of your work there? So uh, there I'm uh, employed on a, a welcome-funded project in the Pontus Scogland Laboratory, so the, the ancient DNA laboratory at the, the Francis Crick Institute. And the, the main aim of the project there is to generate a thousand high-quality ancient genomes from um, Britain. And um, the, the, the point of doing this is th th there's broadly a sort of a medical evolutionary focus in that we want to in in Britain, you have this thing, the UK Biobank, which is uh, the biggest in the world, uh, the biggest sort of repository of genetic sequences and also other medical information uh, uh, in the world. And so, sort of, the population of Britain has become this sort of model population for looking at medical genetics, uh, uh, particularly because we have so much genomic information that can be linked to also, you know, MRIs and um, CT scans and things. Uh, so, what we want to create for Britain to, to compare to that is this database of a thousand high quality genomes which we can then compare to this database like the UK Biobank. So it essentially extends something like the UK Biobank into kind of a, a fourth dimension. So you see the development of the genetics of Britain um, um, through time. And sort of the, the main aims of this project is to look at evolutionary processes particularly. So um, how natural selection has shaped the genome of people who have been okay. living in Britain over the last uh, 6,000 years or so um, and sort of look at particularly as well medical, medically relevant uh, genetic changes but also within that um, you know by um, almost uh, as, 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 as part of the process we produce all this data on the ancestry of the people that we're looking at their uh, genetic sex um, and, and uh, figure out relationships between individuals so at the same time we can look at these broad questions of uh, ancestry change in the past uh, as well as uh, regional and sort of site-specific questions again of, of ancestry migration um, and relationships between individuals particularly and w whether two individuals were related to each other or yeah. not and whether they were re that, that, re that relationship was referenced in yeah, yeah. burial to get an idea of how uh, genetic relationships and w were, were sort of recognized socially and how that's represented in in um, the archaeology in terms an incredible, of very uh, an in incredible mineable mineable database then that, that i mean that, that's my understanding of what you're saying you know in, in a few words that you're developing yeah well that's the point is that with all genetic studies the data is eventually all uploaded yeah. into public accessible databases so people will keep on going back to these databases for for years and years and there have been new discoveries you know, we, we won't necessarily find everything there is to find in the, the data that we have. We'll look at some specific questions. Mm -hmm. But later on, people can come back and um, look at these things again using new tech, look at this data again using new techniques uh, and new methods and potentially find things that we we don't spot. I mean, there's a, there's a, a funny story about that, that my uh, Pontus at the Crick Institute, he we did one of the, well, the first study on um, Neolithic and Mesolithic populations from Europe. And published uh, the results from that, suggesting that there's a significant change in ancestry in Scandinavia, at least uh, 
with, with introduction of Neolithic farming, and then a few um, um, a, f so a few years later, another research group analysed the data that he'd produced and found evidence in one of the skeletons that he looked at that that they'd um, suffered from uh, plague. Oh my goodness! So uh, okay. Yersinia pestis. So you know, the one hand it's cool. On the other hand, you know that data was just sort of sitting there. Uh, uh, the partners could have found it. At, well, not at any time because maybe the techniques weren't there, but at some point he could have found it and, uh, and he never did and someone else gets swooped in and sort of uh, <laughs> uh, found this. But there's there's so many other things like that that could yeah. still be, you know, lying, just waiting to be discovered not, with just within the data itself. It's not, not quite the same as uh, discovering a significant bone lying in a dusty drawer at the basement of a university somewhere, is it? But, <laughs> but, but it's amazing that, that new stuff can be found from, yeah. We first came across you um, a few weeks ago now um, because of headlines uh, about the paper in the uh, mainstream media about uh, a paper that you'd written with Joanna Brook. Is that correct? Death is not the end. Radiocarbon and histophenomic evidence for the curation and excarnation of human remains in Bronze Age Britain. But the headlines, well basic, basically, the headlines were saying... <laughs> Our ancestors used to hand, hang on to their relics. relics. <laughs> yes. So, um, yes, this was a paper. I have several hats, research hats at the moment, the ancient DNA one. And then my original, so when I did my PhD, it was looking at um, how bo archaeological bones, and particularly human bones, degrade and how they are degraded by bacteria and how that relates to uh, funerary treatment in the past. Uh, and then also sort of through that, I, I, then through this project, I got into radiocarbon dating and uh, modeling sort of radiocarbon dates. Mm. Yeah, so the, so, the, so the point of this paper was, uh, I think particularly it was been a long-term ambition of Joe's to look into this question because all through the, the Bronze Age, and to be fair, in other prehistoric periods too, you have contexts where um, just bits of bits of bones turn up a skull here an arm an arm bone there and that can be in a grave itself so you have a grave uh, with a with a complete skeleton in it and then you might just have like a couple of bits of uh, somebody else seemingly placed in the grave itself so occasionally this stuff turns up in you know the grave fill in which case it might be that the, the sort of someone just disturbed uh, another grave and then just deposited it back mm. in to uh, this grave they were digging for this person but in some cases, it looks like this stuff's been placed. Uh, and similarly, in the, in the later parts of the Bronze Age, where you have settlement evidence, you get bits and pieces of bone turning in kind of pits and ditches and things. So this, to some extent, we know that th these bones had to have been kept or, or how we term it, cu curated for a little while because they were disarticulated from the rest yeah. of the skeleton. So the, 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 the body must have decomposed. Someone must have fetched the bone uh, and then... Uh, moved it and put it in this new context in a settlement or in a grave. Um, the question that we wanted to, to mainly answer was, was it that kind of um, process that I just described? Where, where, was it sort of an extended funerary treatment where people were just waiting for the, the bodies to decompose uh, so they could get a bone uh, and then just redeposit it straight away? Or were people actually keeping hold of bones, of human bones, for potentially long periods of time before they were um, uh, eventually deposited, and um, the the principle behind what we did, you know, is quite simple, really, because radiocarbon dating gives you the date at which the the organism you're dating died, uh, not necessarily when it was put in the mm -hmm. ground. Um, we 
looked at a lot of these examples of human, these single human bones, look like they've been placed in particular contexts, and radiocarbon dated uh, this human bone, and then radiocarbon dated something that was uh, accompanying it, something that wasn't a human bone. It was usually an animal bone or a, a, a charred, charred seed or something. So what you're getting is the date of the person's death, and then the earliest point at which uh, because we don't know whether maybe the, the animal bone had been kicking around for a little while. But the earliest point at which that, that human bone was, was put in the ground um, and see whether there was a big difference between those two things, essentially seeing if there was a big difference between the date that that person died and the date when their remains were um, st uh, stuck in the yeah. ground. And what we found was that there was consistently uh, a, a significant offset between these bits of human bones and um, and the materials that accompanied them um, uh, based on the radio radiocarbon dating but we found that it wasn't necessarily all that long a period that things were being kept for so so we, we'd speculated that perhaps you know they could have been keeping these things for hundreds maybe thousands of years mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. passed down as kind of heirlooms and well you know how you think of uh, saintly relics today that that, that that these were seen as remnants of sort of mythical ancestors or mythical people that um, mm -hmm. lived in the very distant distant past um, but actually um, usually the maximum that they were kept for was sort of up to about 200 years but on average they were only being kept for uh, around 60 years or so so maybe a, a couple of generations okay. um, in in the main so so, so it, more more like people do nowadays keeping the ashes in the urn on the mantelpiece you think exactly like exactly uh, a similar kind yeah. of uh, compulsion that and and that it was what was important to us was that it seemed to be that there was an emphasis on people that would have lived within living or cultural yeah, memory yeah. and they would have known who it was. It wasn't just some anonymous ancestor. It would have been someone who's, who the people keeping the remains would have known about yeah. and, uh, and, and would have been able to tell stories about potentially as well. Um, and, um, you know, would have been significant to them or sort of their close community or, or, or family. And what's interesting is the fact that it seems like that they were only buried you know, they were they were after you got went past those maybe two or three generations, then they were buried in the ground, which might suggest that you know, after when this person starts to pass out of living or cultural memory, yeah. um, that's when they decide to to sort of decommission these objects by by um, burying them in the ground. So it does suggest that it is about um, it's not so much making very deep connections with a very distant past. Yeah in terms of keeping these human remains it's about sort of referencing relationships between people during life or people who, who lived in very recent memory i think yeah, yeah i think one of the really fascinating finds was the the thigh bone that was made into a flute uh you know i mean because the, the the two distinct burials that uh, that that really flagged up were the 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 woman who was buried with two other skulls so it's like, was she buried with her parents or were they her grandparents? You know, us putting um, uh, someone's ashes in an urn on a mantelpiece, there, there's something kind of abstract about that. But if you've actually got somebody's leg bone, that ah, granddad's leg bone, let's make that into a flute. He used to love a bit of music. There's, <laughs> there's something quite different about the way you're engaging with your ancestry to uh, yeah. <laughs> to do something, you know, play granddad's leg or uh, uh, it's you know it's a very different uh, it tells us a lot about uh, well does it does it tell us a lot it tells us a certain amount about how people were dealing with 
the deceased. It gives us a lot uh, of you know, detail to play with when we're trying to drill down and trying to, <laughs> however hopelessly yes. it may be, to enter some kind of mindset of <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> it's it's just such fascinating stuff. Yeah. But uh, an interesting thing here for me is because your specialities now that you're you're very rooted in modern tech. Uh, so whether it's ADNA or uh, chemical analysis, and you've got this the next generation sequencing, for example, can you tell us more about what makes uh, this NGS next generation sequencing? What makes it so groundbreaking in comparison with uh, you know what um, DNA analysis was previously? So um, I mean, a lot of it has to do with costs, but it, it essentially what it does is that the the old methods that people use to look at, I mean, and to be fair, people still do look at DNA this way as well and still get good results, I should say, before <laughs> some people that I know who use this method go and do it, decide to pan my hide for doing them down. But these uh, polymerase chain reaction methods is what it's referred to. And essentially what you're doing with that is that you are fishing for a particular bit of DNA that would answer the question um, that you want to ask. So something that's this answers the old, really relevant. Techniques. This yeah. is the old technique. Yeah, you're, you're essentially, uh, you put in what's called a primer, which is like, if, if you're using a fishing analogy, like your bait, and then that sort of attracts, uh, the, where you're defining what part of the genome you want to look at, and that attracts the ancient uh, genome, uh, part of the genome to it, that part of the genome that's, that, that's in there. Okay. And then you just kind of fish it out and then sequence it, and then you can see sort of what, um, version of that genetic sequence the ancient person had. So that could be relevant to their ancestry. It could be relevant to whether they could digest uh, uh, milk in adulthood. Um, so you were looking at very small but very specifically informative parts of the genome. One of the big issues with this is that it was very hard to tell whether the sequence that you got back was from the ancient person or was just something that had dropped off a researcher and gone tangled up uh, with, the, with, okay. with, with the bone. Um, you know, was essentially con modern modern contamination. There was no way of essentially authenticating uh, the ancient DNA sequences. What next generation sequencing does is rather than being able, rather than fishing out these um, specific bits, you essentially just sequence all of the DNA sequences that are within within the sample, and that includes sort of human, bacterial, and uh, sort of some, sometimes pathogenic bacteria as well. Um, so that means you're get rather than getting these very specific sequences, you're getting um, you know millions of uh, uh, of sequences coming uh, DNA sequences coming out. So you get this incredibly rich um, data set. And importantly, with that stuff is that you there are now methods to authenticate the DNA to make sure that it's ancient. I mean, there are a few ways of doing it, but it essentially relies on um, uh, damage. So um, DNA uh, degrades in a very specific way over time. So by looking at the ancient, uh, the damage on the DNA strands that you get out, you can um, you can essentially authenticate the sequence and say, yeah, this is definitely okay. um, ancient. So that's the main thing is that you you're getting a much richer data set, um, in that you're you're getting just a random uh, accumulation of sequences from all across the genome, rather than picking out these very tiny specific parts, but also that you can authenticate the. So uh, my, so I get from that that huge difference is that you're getting a large database which you can throw different questions at which you can query in different ways not just in the narrow specific way of the, as, it, as it was previously is, is that right yeah yeah so it's you know you have so much 
information you know there are, there are questions that you can ask of that you know you, you, when you sequence this stuff you can ask particular questions i mean there are yeah. obvious ones like what's this person's genetic ancestry what's their genetic sex uh are they how similar are they to other individuals does that suggest that they're related or more closely related than to, to other populations but there were potentially lots of other questions that could come up in the future and that we could look at through analysis uh, further analysis um, that, that we can't do yet, although we haven't thought of yet, that people can go back to these <laughs> yeah, genomes and look at later on. Exactly what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so all of these genomes are usually on publication are made, put into public databases, so people can always keep coming back and um, and reanalyzing them. So, mm. you know, I mean, the, the the one thing that people seem to be working on a lot at the moment is seeing if you can figure out actual census population size in, in the past, because there, there are methods to try and figure out relative differences in population size between ancient populations yeah. but it's confounded by a lot of different things so there's, there's this sort of effort at the moment to see whether you can actually figure out uh, sort of in terms of orders of magnitude how big the populations at particular times were likely to have been mm. that's interesting yeah. Yeah. well we'll watch that space no. i have to ask you this is something this is almost a tiny detail just to throw in there i, I had never heard of <laughs> Uh, before listening to one of your talks, uh, the the importance really of the petrous bone. Yes, that it's the, the petrous bone in the skull is so resistant to contamination. Never knew that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so that I mean, it, it makes sense really because petrous literally, literally means stone-like, um, and it's the densest bone in the uh, human body. So it makes sense that it that it should be so. Um, well preserved. Uh, essentially, a, a lot of the other parts of the human skeleton have little porosities inside them, um, but this this bone doesn't. Um, it's very sort of uh, solid, layered, and highly sort of mineralized mm. and protective, which makes sense because it essentially surrounds the inner ear. So, yeah, so it, it must be very it's, conserved. It's this just yeah. So your, your temporal bone is oh right okay. Is this bone on the side of your yeah. head, around your ear, then the petrous portion of the temporal bone sort of surrounds your ear canal as it travels inside your skull so it's um it's like pyramidal shaped yeah. so you've got your ear canal going in and then it just surrounds it but this is, but also, this is your mean, heart the hardest bone in your body just here <laughs> yeah on the you can't touch it without putting your finger through your head but <laughs> okay. uh, it's, uh, trying, it's uh, uh it's yeah you can't get don't try this inside, at home folks inside your head. yeah don't uh yeah Maybe if you're, uh, yeah, like sticking your fingers in your ears, you could get far enough down to touch it. But uh, that's the only way you get anywhere close to it. Yeah, it's like right inside your 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 head okay. or your inner ear. Okay. But I mean, what's interesting recently is um, there's in inside you probably know inside your your ears you have these three tiny bones called the ear ossicles, um, three in each ear. And actually, they've turned out to be just as seems to be just as good for DNA as the the petrous portion of the temporal bone. So I spend actually a lot of my time now fishing inside ancient people's ears to try and uh, fe fetch the uh, the aerosols. They don't often survive. Of course you do. You... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, a lot of time people come there, it looks like I'm just cleaning out their ears because um, if there's soil in there, it can sometimes trap the aerosols inside. So I clear all the soil oh, out of their ears. I'd forgotten out. that about that that okay. bone. Yes. Uh, you did, did you say, I mean, it's used for uh, establishing the gender of the, the, the body, that inner ear bone, isn't it? Am I going off on one here? The sex. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, some measurements of the, of that ear, of uh, the ossicles and the the inside of the petrous bone, sometimes, uh, or oh, there's a method that which it can be used to determine sex. I think. Yeah, you're thinking of I know why because it's Christy Willis's um, stuff at, at 
Stonehenge. Yes, yeah, Obi Hole Seven. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So there's there's the internal part of the year that's yeah certain shape, and it, it seems to correlate with um, with biological sex. Sorry, but yeah, slight it's digression. The, the, there, the, the, no, it's all right. <laughs> these uh, these articles, I, I really like getting them because it's like someone's soul dropping out of their head. Because if you get that, you don't have to drill anything. Yeah. You know, you can just take it, and we we just. We don't have to do anything. We just put it straight in t- and, and process it in the lab. So if we, you know, if we get one of those, then it's it's sort of a bit of a bonus, really, because it speeds things up and it's um, it's it feels less destructive as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So Tom, you know, we we call ourselves the prehistory guys, which you know sounds a bit uh, general, but the truth of the matter is, we tend to focus on the fifteen hundred years after about four thousand. Uh, BC, because that's where we started off with stones, uh, basically, and in the in the Neolithic <laughs> and early bronze. Um, mm. But you know what has become so clear to us? It's really important to us to understand the transitions from out of the Mesolithic into the Neolithic and uh, from the Neolithic in into the Bronze Age. You know, because it wasn't so long ago. I didn't realize. I don't know about you. Can't speak for for you, Robert. Robert? Robert? We, we, we've only known each other 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that uh, wasn't aware of just how profound those crossover points uh, were, those tipping points were. So we'd like to talk about that, but as a pricey to that, we need to start in, in the Mesolithic, and that brings us to the um, uh, Cheddar Man. Um, which, uh, mm. as far as we can tell, is the oldest whole skeleton. Uh, is it just in more or less? Yeah, mostly. Com- we always have to say mostly complete. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of legally obliged to say mostly, mostly complete. complete. Oh, it's okay, not, <laughs> but, but it's not quite complete. But it is, you know, everything. Everything before earlier than that from Britain is essentially, you know, like a a, a bit of yeah, bone, a bit yeah, of yeah. Uh, apart from the Red Lady of Paviland. But again, uh, he uh, is. Yes. Um, He's not complete. He's less complete than Cheddar Man. Yeah, yeah. But tell us, tell us about the significance of Cheddar Man in all of this. Well, Cheddar Man um, was sort of sequenced as part of a project that we were looking at the transition between the, the Mesolithic and the Neolithic in Britain, and whether there's a, a, a genetic change suggestive that there were movements of people into Britain that, that were accompanied the Neolithic. So there were really very few. Uh, human remains dating to the Mesolithic from Britain. Uh, it's kind of Britain has this strange deficiency in Mesolithic human remains, and so Ch- even though Cheddar Man was discovered uh, uh, back in uh, sort of over a hundred years ago now, you know, since I think. then they're actually, I think it was 1903. Yeah, I was going to say it, but then I, uh, I had a crisis of confidence. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in, uh, in 1903, that happens a lot. Uh, yeah, and um, so um, even since then, you know, after getting this sort of really um, important Mesolithic skeleton. There's been very little. There's, there's been quite a few, particularly uh, Avalin's Hall uh, discoveries, but that was actually before Cheddar Man, even even before Cheddar Man. Mm. Uh, but other things. So there's very few Mesolithic human remains. So it was important that we we looked at him. So um, you know, it was, it was kind of to get a baseline of what um, the populations in Mesolithic Britain looked like to compare to the ones that are here in the in the Neolithic. So we looked at his ancestry. Um, he looked essentially quite, in, in a sense, quite boring in that he was exactly the same genetically as other Mesolithic people from other parts of Europe okay. that have been um, sequenced. He belonged to this um, 
genetic uh, ancestry type that people refer to as the Western European hunter-gatherers. And they essentially, um, from sort of the end of the Younger Dryas, or from around in Britain, from around uh, 11,000 years ago, um, are the population that inhabits most of uh, most of uh, Western Western Europe. And uh, the um, important thing to point out is that uh, at ten at eight thousand BC, uh, we were still joined onto the continent, and so yeah, Britain was a peninsula north of uh, northwest Europe. Yeah, exactly. And what what's interesting about Cheddar Man is that he is very genetically similar to other. Um, Mesolithic people from continental Europe, so much you know, which suggests that these places were uh, Britain and Europe were quite well connected mm-hmm. in that there wasn't much genetic differentiation between him and, and other people. Yeah. And um, uh, I mean, w- when we were working on him, there was also a, a TV show for Channel Four that sort of before we started working him, just essentially wanted to do a show on on, on Cheddar Man, and they wanted to do a facial reconstruction and inform that with the with the DNA. Um, and um, we already knew, well, um, during when we were working on Cheddar Man and uh, working with the TV film crew, um, we, we were sort of filming some bits. And, there, and then there was a, a paper that came out that, that found that this Western hunter-gatherer population um, didn't have the, these two genetic variants that are highly associated with lighter skin pigmentation yeah. in um, uh, mo- mo- modern Europeans. Um, so we kind of knew that, and that essentially sort of limits how light uh, their skin pigmentation uh, would have been. It still is potentially a, a broad, a very broad range of potential skin pigmentations, mm-hmm. but it, it suggests that you wouldn't expect them to have had the very pale skin pigmentation that you see in um, in Europe in people. Uh, certain populations live in Europe um, specifically. Um, so as part of this, you know, they, they did this facial reconstruction and then um, they, they wanted essentially to know quite how dark he was. So we used how, how dark his skin pigmentation was likely to be. So we used this um, um, forensic tool which had been developed on world populations uh, that are living today, which predicted his uh, gentleman's skin pigmentation with slightly more precision. I say slightly because it's, it's not very much, much more precise in the grand scheme of things, but it, it gave a, a bit more precision than just it was a, it was quite dark, and mm-hmm. sort of it fit. Uh, if you look up the the Fitz uh, Fitzpatrick, I think it's called Fitzpatrick uh, scale of um, skin pigmentation, it sort of uh, predicted that he would have had from dark to what's called in the um, uh, in in the classification the dark to black uh, skin category. Yeah. So essentially, this is a very um, broad uh, range of skin pigmentation, which is essentially pretty much every skin, pig, skin, dark, skin pigmentation which is darker than what we see mm. associated with, um, with, with Europe today. Mm. Um, so we, we don't necessarily know all of the genetic variants that are associated with skin pigmentation, and there could be ones um, uh, that we, we don't know about that uh, influence skin pigmentation in um, and Cheddar Man, although it's unlikely that there are, given how overstudied European populations yeah, are, and yeah. the fact that Western hunter-gatherers have a substantial genetic legacy mm. in uh, modern European populations, it's unlikely there's any variant in there that would substantially make his skin, predictor skin yeah, pigmentation yeah. substantially um, lighter. But it's likely that that him and other Western hunter-gatherers 
would have had sort of darker pigmentation than what we're used to it's, seeing in um, Europe at the moment. It, it's, it's an incredible reconstruction. Though. It's a very striking image. Um, and there's something about it that, that it has a sort of ring of authenticity about it. I don't know if that's a skill of the people that did the reconstruction, but also the thing, the other thing that stands out are the uh, blue eyes. What, uh, what gives um, with the blue eyes? Um, it's, it's strange. I mean, we still don't really know um, why um, this, um, these genetic variants that are linked to lighter uh, colored eyes become so prominent in um, Europe, particularly at this stage. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's, there's sort of, uh, you know, it could just be that this population was what we call drifted, which is where one population splits off from another. And then just by a random chance, uh, you know, when you sum from a population, the sort of physical characteristics in that new population, mm -hmm. the genetics that control those physical characteristics, aren't quite the same as the ones in the same proportions as the ones that as the original source population. And then those differences through time, through this process, genetic drift, these dis these dis these uh, differences become magnified. So it could be that essentially you have this Western hunter-gatherer population that split off from um, another population and happen to have a, a, a more uh, a, a higher frequency of these genetic variants linked to lighter colored eyes. So this, that includes blue, green, and hazel eyes. Mm. Um, and then over time, uh, because they were separated from this other population, it just became um, essentially common amongst this um, this uh, 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 particular population. But I mean, that striking um, combination of features is indicative of that, that these Western hunter-gatherers and Cheddar Man, in terms of the genetic variation, they exist outside of um, the modern genetic variation that we see um, really across the world, but particularly in Europe today. Yeah. They're kind of a population out on their own, almost what you would describe a, a ghost population, because they essentially don't really exist in unadmixed form. You know, the, all of the migrations yeah, and population yeah. changes that have occurred in Europe since Cheddar Man was alive means that you know, the genetics of people who live in Europe today are dramatically different from those of the Western hunter-gatherers. And I feel like that though, that, that that strange combination of um, physical characteristics sort of yeah. reflects that to some extent, that, that his underlying genetics I'm are, glad you said um, that, because in a, in a world where we expect things to evolve gradually, you know, in, in, in a world of continuums, you'd expect there be, to be some remnant of uh that genome in the, the present day but apparently it is not so so yeah, well it's, it's it's a weird thing so so there are so people in britain and in europe today do have ancestry that comes from this population but because you have uh, it, it tends to be a minority yeah, of, yeah. of people's overall ancestry and it's so mixed in with lots of other things that you know that it, it's you can't really class it as being the same population yeah. it's sort of so um, transformed but th th this is you know i I'm, I'm sort of conscious talking about this stuff of too over romanticizing ancient dna and making it uh, dna researchers look like they're they're sort of trying to reconstruct myths of people mm -hmm. what's important to remember about genetics is that genetics of populations are always changing yeah. just sometimes they change more slowly and sometimes they change more quickly you have these three processes genetic uh, drift uh, natural selection and, and mm -hmm. migration all of these things in one way or another are changing genetics through time sometimes you get these periods in the neolithic and the bronze age where they change in relative terms very rapidly 
and you you get big ancestry changes and changes in genetics sometimes it changes more slowly so we people who are in britain today are genetically different from uh in 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 a uh, more minor or more major ways than any ancient population you know mm. you know up through the sort of history and similarly populations in britain who um in the future will be genetically different from okay. the ones who inhabit it yeah, today yeah. that's that that when, when it comes to genetics that aspect of constant change is is the norm there is no sort of static crystallization of it's like these are yeah, when yeah, the, yeah. The, the British people this is the this is the crystallization of the British people at this time that just does that's just not that just doesn't happen um, uh, in genetics we're always changing genetically through so talking of change along come the farmers yes <laughs> yeah so um, yeah in another paper I was involved with with uh, Natural History Museum and the Harvard University this one I, I referred to earlier looking at the genetic change over the uh, Neolithic transition, which occurs around 4000 BC in uh, Britain. Yeah, you see. So obviously there was a, there was a bit of a question about how this transition occurs in Britain and in, to what extent it involves uh, farmers moving into Britain from continental Europe and introducing Neolithic farming practices um, to Britain. And um, uh, what we see is that uh, the, the, part of the issue is that we don't have many Mesolithic human remains. We have one sample that dates to the fifth millennium uh, BC from Western Scotland, okay. but that sample is genetically continuous with um, all the other Mesolithic samples that we have have from Britain. It has okay. no continental uh, ancestry from uh, farmers that are living in continental Europe okay. at the same time. But it's always been a big question in Britain because you have this a thousand-year gap between. Farming arriving in adjacent areas of of continental Europe, so northern parts of northern France yeah. um, uh, and other parts of mainland uh, continental Europe, and it arriving in Britain. So they're there; they can see Britain, <laughs> um, but uh, there's there's the, the population doesn't move um, over there until uh, or we don't see a, a change in sort of the culture in Britain yeah. so much until sort of a thousand years after. Should we say a little so bit, bit about, about where they've come from in the first place before we? shove them into before they get into britain <laughs> yeah so um and the, as the neolithic develops across all of europe it seems to be accompanied by a dramatic shift quite a dramatic shift in the ancestry of the people people who are living in those regions um and we can see this because the ancestry of uh, this new ancestor that arrives is quite divergent from the ancestry that was there already because it comes from a population who are quite uh, have lived relatively separately from um, uh, the populations of uh, Mesolithic Europe. And this ancestry seems to originate somewhere in uh, in Anatolia and um, uh, where farming practices yeah, yeah. Uh, in Western Eurasia first begin to develop. And then it seems like, and then these farming practices disperse across Europe. And uh, with those dispersals, it seems that you get this, this dispersion of this uh, uh, dispersal of this ancestry as well, uh, what's called early European farmer ancestry, which yeah. originates in in Anatolia, yeah. and yeah, when um, so the, it it works on a cline that the further west and the further sort of north that you go, they're 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 sort of mixing with the local population, so you get more and more ancestry from the people who inhabited these places oh, okay. during the Mesolithic, but still, you know, it never becomes more. It often, in most cases, it never becomes more than a, a minority component oh, of really? the ancestry. Okay. So it's interesting in that when um, you know uh, the populations eventually move into Britain, so we do see a big change in ancestry. We see uh, around 4,000 BC, essentially everyone in Britain 
suddenly has this ancestry that that over the last two thousand years yeah. comes from uh, back in um, Anatolia, Amazing. and um, but also they they're carrying a significant proportion around. Uh, 20-25% of ancestry from the Mesolithic populations of Europe yeah, that they've that, mixed with as they're moving yeah. along. So they've kind of mixed and swept. Not only do you get this this sort of Anatolian uh, ancestry coming into Britain, you also get like uh, just this mi- this uh, mixed sort of smorgasbord of, of ancestry that's being picked up from all over Mesolithic Europe that comes into Britain It's had well. a thousand years, basically, to uh, mix and uh, you know diversify and everything before... Uh, they're coming across the channel, which yeah. is there by this time, yeah. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, um, and now there's sort of debates, you know, it's hard to deny that there are population movements into Britain around 4000 BC. Mm-hmm. Some people would argue that there is evidence for Mesolithic people in, uh, or uh, people who were living in Britain pre-4000 BC having adopted certain aspects of Neolithic practices before then. Yeah. And then sort of this migration is something or the, these these population movements are something, you know, different and sort of slightly detached from the. Yeah, I think Alison Sheridan might practice. have something to say about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah, she's, uh, she's very uh, strident about this. I mean, it, to me, it's, you know, it's just too, it's just too coincidental that at the same time that you get, you know, essentially what you call the Neolithic and Ernest in Britain, where you, you definitely have. Um, these new types, these tombs, you definitely have uh, domesticated plants and animals Mm -hmm. that also you have this shift in ancestry, you know, pretty much uh, um, exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's hard not to suggest that. I mean, even if, you know, Mesolithic people in Britain did take on certain um, um, aspects of Neolithic practices that were being um, uh, practiced on the continent, this this point does there's still this point where people move in and then that that is is associated with a dramatic change in the culture so you know I, in my mind you could argue the case of there being a sort of a gradual adoption of neolithic things in in britain by sort of mesolithic people but that at 4000 bc you definitely have uh, people coming into Britain from continent, parts of continental Europe, and that that is associated, you know, times very well with the really dramatic changes in in um, uh, material culture and practices yeah. in Britain, sort of, and the development of uh, the Neolithic in in Britain. Yeah, and I think what what illustrates that quite well is that you know, in, in the initial period, we we definitely do see some mixing in Britain, particularly in Western Scotland. There's there's people in Western Scotland where we can see that. They have ancestors that were likely in Britain who had ancestry from people who lived in Mesolithic Britain. So, so, so there's one of their ancestors, not so far back, maybe three generations back, didn't have any of this Anatolian ancestry mm. and were, were, were sort of uh, genetically a Western hunter-gatherer. Mm. Um, but by the time we get to kind of the middle to uh, late part of the Neolithic, so about 3,500 to 3,000, if we take into account that there's been that Western hunter-gatherer ancestry that's been that the, the, the Neolithic farming populations already had. If you take that into account, we hardly see any contribution from the the Mesolithic people um, that were in Britain then. I, I think it's been estimated. It's, it's even bigger. We don't make much of it in the paper, but it's an even bigger shift than what you see in the, the later period in the in, in the Bronze Age. You know, it's been estimated at over 95% um, uh, shift in, in ancestry that 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 
you know, that Mesol- that ancestry from Mesolithic people just dis- just is diminished and then it never really uh, comes back. This doesn't, I, I hasten to add, this doesn't translate into sort of populations being wiped out oh, no. or uh, anything like that. It could just be that in the late part of the, the very late Mesolithic in Britain that Britain just wasn't that densely populated. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, and that you wouldn't necessarily, this doesn't have to necessarily be a, what you would call a mass migration either. No. That um, you could only have need to have necessarily a few groups of people moving in. But then if they are living a lifestyle which particularly farming allows you to do where you're able to produce more children that, that yeah, live uh, to adulthood and are, are able to have children of their own, mm-hmm. Then um, and and then, produ- and uh, supports a, a greater population. Exactly. Yeah. So they they could move in and just support a greater population size and just and they could they could integrate completely in terms of intermarriage with the local populations that are there. But over the long term, yeah. genetically, yeah. they'll have a they'll have a little a smaller gene a much smaller genetic legacy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is interesting how we, you know, uh, moving forwards, you know, and and looking at the uh, the shift of beaker culture coming into Britain. That, you know, we we've had these waves coming from completely different directions, and how you know this vast cultural change that came with the the beaker incursion. Tell us a bit about uh, your work there. Yes, so um, after um, you get this ancestry from well ultimately originating in anatolia predominating among across most of europe it pretty much stays like that until around 2700 bc when you start to see this again this novel ancestry coming in um that is again divergent from the ancestry that's already in sort of parts of central and western europe and it seems to originate uh on the pontic steppes or just north of 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 the black sea and the people who were living there and um uh, so from around 2700 BC, people who are living in Central and um, sort of Eastern Europe, uh, parts of Eastern Europe, suddenly have predominantly this kind of ancestry that arises on the steppe, suggesting that you're getting movements of people gradually across uh, Europe who then mix with, with the local people. But for whatever reason, uh, the ancestry from the, the around the steppe sort of predominate predominates amongst these populations and in, in central and eastern europe this is associated with the development of cultures that are termed the corded corded wear um, uh, cultures so it looks like that these migrations influence the development of these uh, corded wear cultures in eastern and central europe around the same time you're getting the development of sort of bell beaker cultural complexes in uh, in, uh, in iberia where it seems like that's where you get the earliest dates yeah, for yeah bell beakers and you see that uh, the culture those bell beaker cultures spread from from iberia up uh, through and into central europe but that movement of um, bell beaker cultures isn't associated with any genetic change so it seems like that yeah. uh, there were uh, that wasn't accompanied by a migration that was just sort of a movement of ideas and that people really bought into this um, be this bell beaker uh, package of ideas that that, that seem to begin back begin in Iberia, and these people who are living in uh, Central Europe um, at the, at the time and uh, parts of Northern Europe take on aspects of these uh, Belbi cultures as well. Again, without um, sort of and having any ancestral input from people who are living in Iberia, and um, they sort of develop this sort of 
culture that's hy- that's hybridized between the derivatives of okay. these corded ware cultures and uh, taking on aspects of these of these um, uh, Belbeka uh, cultures as well. And then when those those are the sort of Belbeka cultures that we see beginning to appear in Britain from around 2500 BC, and yeah. pretty much as soon as we get these uh, Belbeka burials and Belbeka cultures in Britain. Uh, people start to predominantly show up having um, this steppe ancestry. So it seems like that those people yeah. in sort of Central Europe, in areas of mainland Europe that are adjacent to Britain, moved into Britain, and they large uh, and they were sort of influential in introducing uh, these sort of Belbica cultures uh, into Britain. And so, one thing you you mentioned in one of your lectures I found interesting. I hadn't um, sort of really thought that way before. Was that um, part of the Belbica package? Belbica package was the emphasis on archery, mm. um, and hence the significance of the Amesbury archer. You know, who's, uh, dated was well, he's dated to around about two thousand five hundred BC. Yeah, yeah, he's around then. He's one of the earlier kind of uh, I think Chalcolithic, Chalcolithic. Burials, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but fascinating, of course, that he's in the Stonehenge area. Yeah, um, like well, like all of these archaeological complexes, it's it's sort of you you can speak in generalities, and then we try and get the detail. Yeah. It all breaks down. But yeah, generally speaking, <laughs> the, uh, um, uh, there there seems to be a shift in emphasis, particularly in burials, to uh, archery and um, these. Um, uh, wrists. Well, if they are wrist guards, wrist guards. The, the braces, get. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And um, um, arrowheads as well that turn up in in uh, burials mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. Do do uh, has any genetic uh, work been done on the Amesbury arch? We know that the isotopes uh, from his teeth have been done, but the well, the the genetic makeup confirms the step ancestry with that. I don't. Um, so where is the data coming from? In other words, so. Uh, the Amesbury Archer hasn't been done yet, but uh, I know there's something on the horizon on that account, so uh, <laughs> okay. I can't speak too much about it. But, Excellent. Uh, but yes. <laughs> Didn't know. <laughs> yes. We'll get, get uh, you back on when that happens then. There, uh, there is potentially uh, yeah, some, uh, some DNA from uh, the, uh, the Amesbury Archer on the horizon. But there are there's plenty of DNA from people that lived around uh, in the Stonehenge landscape anyway. And, and actually... Yeah. Um, so the the when we when we look at sort of a, a more regional level at, at, at this ancestry change in Britain, so you know over five hundred years, it seems like that these movements of people into Britain result in a turn an an, turnover of, over of ancestry in Britain of about uh, of over ninety percent. Um, so the, yeah. the, about ninety percent of the ancestry that was in Britain around three th- uh, between three thousand and two thousand five hundred BC sh- um, is shifted. Um, by about uh, 95% with this mixture of steppe ancestry from um, the Pontic steppe mixed with the ancestry from um, uh, Neolithic mm. populations that were living in, um, yeah. in in parts of Europe or mixed together. So so bigger yeah, populations yeah. in Britain have around 50% uh, steppe uh, step ancestry. And it's interesting in that this seems to, this isn't, an immediate thing necessarily. So what you see is between about the period 2500 and 2000 BC in Britain, you see um, um, 
a lot of people having essentially no ancestry related to the people who were living in Britain during the Neolithic. But yeah. then you get these odd, odd individuals turning up that have actually quite a lot of ancestry. Um, in some cases, okay. half of their ancestry. In some cases, sort of like 25%. I mean, 25% of your ancestry suggests that, you know, is, is it, uh, there could be lots of ways of explaining it, but it's equivalent to that person having a, a grandparent whose ancestry yeah. was entirely derived from the Neolithic population of, mm -hmm. of, right. of Britain. Okay. Um, yeah. So cool. it, it's interesting that the um, one of the burials that were looked at for this this paper, this paper that looked at the Beaker transition in Britain, came from the, the quite famous Boscombe Bowman burial. Mm. Oh, this, yes. And um, this is probably one of the richest uh, Beaker burials from Britain. And it's again, it's located on Amesbury Down, so quite close to... Uh, um, Stonehenge and in it you, well one of the primary deposits was sort of a, a single burial um, that was surrounded by um, disarticulated bits and pieces from from so this this is actually quite a nice <laughs> circle <laughs> thing going back to what we were talking about earlier yeah, about curation cool. surrounded by disarticulated bits and pieces of bones from other individuals and one of these was a, a, a skull that had been placed between this this person's legs and this uh, genetic study included dna from this this articulated burial and this skull that had been placed uh, between his legs and there was a couple of interesting features about the dna from this burial so first of all this um, single burial, this articulated burial, their ancestry, half of their ancestry looks like it was related to the populations who inhabited Britain during the Neolithic. So suggesting that one of his parents, um, probably his mother based, based on other factors, uh, actually their ancestry was entirely derived from the Neolithic populations of Britain. Um, yeah. And uh, so, and yet he's the richest burial. So there's not yeah, necessarily yeah. this um, massive link between this ancestry that comes into Britain and these sort of high, very um, high uh, status uh, burials. And it also indicates that through this period between about 2500 and 2000, there's probably pockets of populations with ancestry that is similar to the ancestry of people who were in Britain during the Neolithic surviving through this period. Yeah. We just don't see them um, archaeologically, that they are treating their dead in ways uh, cremation particularly, but also potentially river burial or um, you know, excarnation, leaving the body to just decompose yeah. on the outside. And it's that the burial practice is one of the most profound uh, changes uh, around that, that time, isn't it? Exactly. Um, and if, if, the, if the people that were sort of living in Britain before the, the sort of beaker people arrive carried on practicing the same practices that were practicing before, we just wouldn't be able to see them so well. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Essentially, in this D in the DNA, because you keep on getting these people that have quite a lot of ancestry from the British Neolithic populations of Britain from about 2500 to about 2100 BC, it suggests that there that is evidence that there are pockets of these populations surviving that are that are sort mm. of mixing intermittently with uh, these groups of groups of newcomers. Yeah. So that's actually evidence that you have, oh. and you see the same thing in other parts of Europe um, as well, where um, new populations move in. That for a while you get the situation where um, there are two populations inhabiting potentially different landscapes and that are um, uh, are integrating with each other, but to a limited extent. Yes. And it's interesting when you hit 2100, you get a little uptick in the amount of ancestry in the population as a whole that derives from, again, the, the, the Neolithic populations of Britain. So it suggests that you kind of have two populations living 
um, sort of quite in parallel and only uh, intermarrying infrequently. And then suddenly you hit 2100 mm-hmm. and they integrate totally. Because um, then at the same time, you also stop getting people that have lots of ancestry from um, Neolithic mm-hmm. Britain as well. And But for whatever reason, um, they have very drastically different ancestral legacies and again this could come back to what we're talking about with the neolithic because it's over hundreds of years that we're talking about this could be because the people with the step ancestry have lifestyles which mean that they uh, come in with lifestyles that means that they produce more uh, children who live to adulthood it could be uh, that there's and it's likely that there's constantly movements of populations sort of back and forth between Britain and the continent, which yeah. is constantly introducing this this ancestry from Europe into the, um, Britain. The as caveat well. that we have to throw in, I suppose, is that we're we're probably talking about interactions between the elite, because that's They're what the burials we, have the we know about. For. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, as you know, if, and. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Lara Cassidy's uh, study in Ireland, you know, with yeah, the yeah. incest in Newgrange. But the basic premise of that, you know, was establishing um, that um, high-end burials, as it were, belonged um, to um, the whatever elite, um, you know, and to a hierarchy in, in society. But going back a bit, um, you know, we mentioned uh, in the uh, Mesolithic Neolithic uh, transition, you said, you know, very little evidence, you know, or, or you, your, it's your feeling that that wasn't a case of invasion or takeover, deliberate takeover, you know, just an, an organic um, process. Do you think that's the same here? I mean, it, it is, it's a big change genetically. Mm. Uh, for the population, but it seems relatively slow, and therefore words like invasion and uh, takeover, uh, or even uh, I said invasion, didn't I? <laughs> you, did, you did say invasion. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, but, but, uh, but those notions of aggression, we can take those out. You know. Yeah, I think so. Just be, well, I mean, invasion is again, you know, what we're talking about when we look at the past, what we tend to, particularly prehistory, it's it's weird and sort of applying such a specific term as invasion to prehistory you know where we have no idea how they regarded themselves territories you know um you know as 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 a people you know what what they whether they had um, a very distinct cultural identity that would have been oppositional in that way and that it would have been defined by territories you know it's it's um you know we we can't know that and it's, it's sort of unlikely because that is you know invasion it conjures you know um uh, you know, ide- ideas and events that have occurred over maybe the last two thousand years of, of history. So mm-hmm. it, yeah. it's it's sort of anachronistic in it, in the first place without even looking at the data. It's anachronistic to talk about in invasion in in these periods. I feel like, but also, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's just um, um, you know, you'd expect to see a lot of evidence for interpersonal violence if there was a violent takeover, and we just don't mm-hmm. see this in the in yeah. the Beaker period. And it's not that it's just yeah, that there's yeah, an interesting though. Not that there's an absence of an absence of evidence. It's that we, we, you know, we do see interpersonal violence, but it's lower in the Beaker period than it is in, say, like the the Neolithic uh, mm. period. Oh, interesting. So you get more yeah. evidence of interpersonal violence in the Neolithic period than you do in in this period. So okay. that's the issue. Is that there's just no, um, you know, I would certainly, we, we you know, we can't dismiss it out of hand because it feels unsavoury. The idea of it being there being violence involved, and I'm sure there were violence, but the idea of it being this mass-organized takeover and invasion, yeah, you know, yeah. you 
you, you just don't have the, the evidence for it. We have to come up with a different um, approach. Mm. But, but, but it, to give it to, to give it some perspective, though, um, because you know we we look at the the data that shows that there was this almost complete changeover of of uh, of gene pool, if you like. But that's based on. Can we say how many samples that's based on? How many actual DNA tests? You know, so how many individuals? It's it's a, a couple of hundred, I think. You see that, uh, that, that that's kind of what I'm getting at. That you, you know that mm-hmm. that you could have a situation here where it's it's a changeover of the elite, but the actual population of the country would would quite possibly not change at all uh, of the the common man, if you like. Uh, that it's so, the elite that we know have changed profoundly. So the main reason, over the long term at least, that we know it's ju- it's not just the elite is because when you get this introduction of step ancestry and this reduction of the ancestry of people who are living there in the Neolithic, it essentially doesn't come back. Um, ah. So um, I've, I've used this quite a lot, but um, basically, the, the you know when you look at the genomes of um, people who live in Britain today, no one has significantly, substantially much more um, ancestry from Neolithic Britain than um, people who inhabited Britain during the Bronze Age. So essentially, if people, if the the common people with this Neolithic ancestry were hiding then, then they're still hiding now. (laughs) They're still hiding and they haven't haven't integrated (laughs) with the population now. So they, you know, so we know that it is it is a big change in that it, it is um, a um, uh, a long-lasting change, but the mechanism of that change and the period of it is is still very much up in the air. And this is and genetics can't really answer that satisfactorily. That that that's the issue is that mm-hmm. um, you need it needs to be integrated better with the archaeology to, to understand what actually is happening that produces um, this change. You know, the genetics says that there is a change. Uh, and that it occurs over, you know, potentially 400 years or so. Um, but it, it's only with the archaeology that we can really say how that happens. You know, there is no genetic variant associated with um, your propensity to <laughs> move into Britain and kill everybody in sight. <laughs> you can't look at the genetics and yeah. say, this guy is a, uh, is a, yeah, a, total, right. uh, yeah. Yeah, a total maniac and is, will kill everyone, yeah. uh, to completely take over. So the genetics yeah. can't answer that that question it has to be integrated with the archaeology and the archaeology suggests there's much, something much more you know and it is consistent with the genetic evidence it's just not consistent with you know you know this it's consistent with a certain interpretation of the genetic evidence of potentially mm. populations moving in uh, into areas that are, are unoccupied uh, and sort of um, settling down in these areas um, and sort of slowly integrating with local populations over time um, but not so much with with running in and killing everyone off yeah yeah well say that where where, uh, where are the main centers where um, uh, the bee culture first appears in uh, are we talking around about in wiltshire or are we talk or is it uh, so some of, general up and down the country um there are specific regions where it's more represented it's always hard to know whether that is because uh because it's a genuine phenomenon or or it's because that there were a lot of uh, aristocrats who lived in Wiltshire who liked to go and dig barrows back in the uh, <laughs> late 19th and early 20th century and so we have yeah. a big bias because because I mean the barrows you know you can't walk around Wiltshire without tripping over a round barrow 
So, uh, you know, and they're, so they're very yeah. visible. So a lot of the evidence comes from there. But I mean, in terms of the, the burials from which we have the, the genetic evidence, yes, the, the earliest one is actually that um, skull from the, oh no, sorry, the earliest one is from, uh, burial is from um, Dorset, um, Canada Farm, which is this single articulate burial oh, underneath a, a barrow. Okay. Uh, and yeah. similarly, you get uh, you get another a few early ones as well. Again, yeah, around in Wessex, but actually another early one is up in Western Scotland as well in um, a site called Fireish, um, and that, that that's very early as well. So I mean, and those are quite mm. Mm. Um, mm. obviously quite ge- geographically uh, um, far flung samples. So those those are kind of main. Is there any clue? Mm. Is there any idea of what the attraction was? Because as I said, the this. Is, it's been a long time since there was any kind of transition across the uh, the channel. Why now? Why, you know, and uh, what was the benefit? Was it pressures from internal pressures, you know, sort of I mean, use of land there's over lots populations? Of, or, uh, again, sorry. Uh, no, no, no. Um, again, I, I, it's difficult to answer this without integrating it with the archaeology. I mean, there's, there's plenty yeah. of theories out there. You know, I mean, some people argue that it was actually like ceremonial landscapes of things like Stonehenge that attracted some people. I mean, the obvious answer and the one that probably has the longest legacy is, uh, you know, the sources of tin that you get in um, mm-hmm. Britain were a big draw. And oh, sure. People yeah, who yeah. were, in, you know, to some extent, these these uh, beacon networks were very much integrated in networks of metal exchange and and control, potentially control of that. Um, of those metal resources, so mm-hmm. that, that's an obvious thing. And also, you have the the, the copper mines at the Great Ormond uh, um, as well. So, is that aspect to it as well? Again, there doesn't seem to be, from what I know, that much, you know, pressure pushing people. It seems people were drawn to to places. There doesn't seem to yeah. be, you know, there aren't a constant series of catastrophes that are forcing people to move further and further west. Yeah, that's, that's what I it know. looks like that people are moving in in search of something um, um, to some extent. But again, it's difficult. There are lots of different theories as to what it is. You know, some... some... Neolithic Britain obviously had a lot to <coughs> offer. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Clearly there, there, was, there was something that, that, that was attractive because they seemed, once those populations arrived, they seemed to sort of be very successful. Mm. it's such a fascinating thing i'm very conscious of the time tom we're going to have to start uh start wrapping this up unfortunately but what uh, tell us so at the crick what what's what's next for you what are you uh what are you working on now and what's the uh the near future showing for you well i mean i'm 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 part of a um i was previously part of a and and still involved in this project that's happening in york actually that i was involved with sort of just before I started at the Crick where we're you know essentially doing the logical thing and from Britain moving from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age right. um, yeah. and looking at genomes <laughs> from there so so Ian Armit at, at York has this Comios project looking at Iron Age populations in uh, Britain and we've already done with Harvard University a lot of DNA from Iron Age populations in Britain and uh, we're, we're, we're going through the results for that at the moment and that's thrown up some, a couple of interesting surprises so that's that that's going to be the, the future one is that's kind of gen, in, in, the, in the very immediate future that's probably going to be the next thing is this kind of genetics of britain through the middle bronze age and into the iron age mm. but at the mm. crick um because uh, we're doing genomes from all periods it's likely that we'll we'll start looking in much more detail at at prehistoric periods uh you know bronze age and getting you know i mean we haven't touched upon it really in this but but looking at uh, 
relatives that we've identified and and, and looking at how that relates to sort of social structure and, and things but also mm-hmm. moving uh, uh, i sort of I vaguely hate to say this as someone who is more concerned with prehistory into uh the uh historical periods into looking at the romans and um early medieval periods right. and and, and <laughs> even enough. later to um <laughs> sort of figure out what if anything is going on um in those periods yeah, too yeah. and again the thing is with this is it is that it often throws up some surprises um because and even with the historical evidence i expect that maybe there'll be some surprises of what we find in the genetics that mm-hmm. maybe contrasts with what we would expect to see based on the historical record because the historical record isn't always necessarily an accurate picture of what actually happened in terms of what's expressed through the genetic so it'll be that's kind of uh um where we're, where we're going we're essentially going all the way up to the modern day right um so yeah there could be some yeah, interesting things that, that are thrown up. Again, to look at natural selection, but, you know, there could be some very interesting things that turn up with ancestry and um, uh, sex and uh, relationships between individuals as well. Fantastic cool. stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. Tom, it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts and knowledge. And yeah. um, I hope, uh, well, I'm sure it will have uh, provided a great... Uh, a deeper understanding, getting that clarity of those uh, transition periods from uh, that we're so interested in. Yeah, it is, and, it's exciting uh, the way all the modern tech is really helping us to unravel, you know, uh, more of the you know the really hidden aspects of uh, of prehistory. So, yeah, could talk all day, but there you go. Yeah, thank <laughs> thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Yeah, yeah I hope you right. can come back and talk to us another day. Yeah, yeah, more than happy to. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for watching this Prehistory Guys show. There's loads more to watch, and you can get to some of it on this playlist here. If you'd like to receive updates about when we publish new content, hit the subscribe button, and you can unlock even more content by becoming a Patreon supporter. Hit this button here to find out more about that. See you soon.